If you were to look in a dictionary uh, for a definition of paradigm shift, you'd find this, a fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. A fundamental change in approach or underlying assumptions. My name is Michael. I serve as one of the pastors here at Genesis and wanted to welcome you to what you are currently experiencing as a paradigm shift. There's been a slight change in how we're going to approach our gathering today. The underlying assumption that you most likely came in when you arrived today is that you would locate your chair. And when I say locate your chair, because I can see you all have a chair that you love to sit in, a specific row that you love to sit in. And my question for you today is your chair is gone, so how are you doing so far with this paradigm shift. I'm guessing some of you are slightly frustrated, maybe slightly annoyed, thinking, really, you took away the chairs just to prove a point? I'm guessing some of you might be mildly impressed with how many coffee stains are on this floor. (laughs) And I'm even guessing some might be thinking, you know, Michael, this is the first time I invited my friend to come to Genesis, and they actually came today, and you choose to take away chairs, making it just weird and awkward for everybody. (laughs) Well, paradigm shifts, they are not easy uh, for really one primary reason. They call for a shift in thinking. They call for a shift in how you once uh, did something or maybe approached something. And let's be honest, not many people like change. We're just creatures of habit, and we appreciate our routines and our rhythms. Now, the paradigm shift that we're all dealing with today, it's not going to last long. We're doing a very much shortened service, encouraging everyone to stand that can. Uh, So this will only last for the next maybe 35 minutes. But what if the paradigm shift was much bigger than just chairs? What if the paradigm shift was much bigger than just a Sunday gathering? What if the paradigm shift actually called for a shift in how you've thought about and organized your entire life? What if the paradigm shift was a shift in the way that you think about your past or your present or your future? What if the paradigm shift was a shift in how you think about all of your relationships? How you think about maybe your relationship with your spouse or with your kids or a dating relationship or a shift in how you think about relationships with neighbors, coworkers, and classmates. What if the shift was how you are going to think about your job, your career, your money and finances and stewardship? What if the shift was a shift in how you think about people? And I mean not just some people, but all people. Not just people that look like you, think like you, and act like you, but what if the shift was about in how you think about all people? What if the shift was a shift in how you think about heaven, or hell, or eternity, or about how you think about God and relating to God? My question is, what if the paradigm shift was so significant that it caused you to rethink every aspect of your existence? Today marks the beginning of history's most abrupt paradigm shift. We call it Holy Week, where a few billion people around the globe are going to be celebrating this week, starting today, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. Today is traditionally known as Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus arrived in Jerusalem, roughly five days before he would be nailed to a cross. 
Now, the population in Jerusalem at this point in time would be roughly 100,000 people, but when it's Passover week, everyone is descending upon uh, the city where they literally would have a population swell to roughly over a million people would be coming into Jerusalem. But this Passover week 2,000 years ago was just very different because the city was abuzz with people talking about Jesus, the one who was known as this great teacher, this prophet, this healer, this miracle worker. The city was abuzz with people talking about the one who actually claimed to be God. But in all reality, people had no idea what to do or to make or to even think about this guy named Jesus because Jesus is a paradigm shift. He was a paradigm shift for them and he's a paradigm shift for us. What I mean by that is Jesus, he did things that shocked people. He did things that were unexpected. When some friends brought their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus, expecting Jesus would heal him, Jesus looked at this man and said, I forgive your sins. And the religious leaders looked at Jesus in Matthew 9 and said, that's blasphemy. Does he think he's God? Jesus spent time with what was known as the wrong people. Jesus was with some of his disciples at a party, and some religious leaders pulled his disciples aside and said, why does your teacher eat with such scum? He didn't hang out with the right people. And he said things that people just did not expect. In Matthew 10, when he's teaching the crowds, he looks at the crowds and he says, if you cling to your life, you will lose it, but if you give up your life for me, you will find it. So people then, as well as people today, just did not know what to do or what to actually think of Jesus. But knowing that Jesus was now in the city and coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, the city came out in droves just to see, what is this guy going to do now? What is Jesus going to say? What is going to happen when he arrives in the city? So this is the story of when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem as told in Matthew 21. As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus went, uh, sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said. As soon as you enter it, you will see a donkey tied there with its colt beside it. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them, and he will immediately let you take them. And this took place to fulfill a prophecy that was in the Old Testament. Tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded, and they brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. Most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others, they cut branches from trees and spread them out on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him began shouting, praise God, or Hosanna, the son of David, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, praise God in the highest heaven. Why is Jesus riding on a donkey? It doesn't seem like a very glamorous or impressive animal to be riding into town on. Why not ride in on a white stallion? Well, there's another paradigm shift that is taking place in this very moment. As Jews would be coming to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover, 
the messianic expectations were really high. And what I mean by messianic expectation, a Jewish person would be thinking, is this the year? Like, is this the moment that God is going to reveal and send to us that promised Redeemer, that promised Savior, that promised Messiah? But the Savior and the Redeemer that people were looking for and wanting and waiting for was a Savior to save them from Rome, not a Savior to actually save them from their sins. So with all this buzz going around about this miracle working, raising the dead back to life, Jesus now arriving in the city, people are wondering, is this Him? Is this the one? Is He the Savior that we have been waiting for for decades, centuries? So when Jesus arrives on a donkey, he's making very clear to everyone in the crowd actually who he is and why he has come into the city. If Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a horse that is going to signal to the people that he is a king ready to wage war against Rome in order to set the Jewish people free and give them their own land. But when Jesus arrives on a donkey, he's letting people know that he is a humble king who is coming to bring peace. As you heard in the story, there were some people who threw their garments on the ground. And that was a form of acknowledgement of, we submit ourselves to you as king. Some people, it says, they began to take palm branches and lay them on the ground and they began to wave them as well. When someone would wave a palm branch, that would be the same thing as you and I waving an American flag at a parade. A palm branch was very much a sign of nationalistic love for their country. But something happened in the crowd that day where the crowd, as they're laying their garments, waving palms, they began chanting, screaming, Hosanna, and Hosanna just simply means save us. Years back, uh, when I was in college, uh, I went to Ohio State, and the big event at Ohio State every year uh, was in November when Ohio State would play Michigan. And that was the biggest rivalry ever. And so everything in the city shut down just for this game. And one of the years, uh, Ohio State beat Michigan. It was a home game. And I was in the crowd with 110,000 people. It was amazing. After the game was over, 110,000 people descended down upon the field. You can imagine that the police did not like that many people down on the field. We were excited. We were celebrating. But the cops wanted us off the field. We wouldn't leave. And so they began to pepper spray the crowd. Now, you can imagine 100,000 plus people getting pepper sprayed. They were not very happy with getting pepper sprayed. And so the crowd began to pick up turf and started throwing turf at the police. I'm in the crowd. I start picking up turf, and I start throwing turf at the police. And I have this moment where I'm like, dirt in hand, police in front of me, thinking, Michael, what on earth are you doing right now throwing dirt at the police? Like everyone else in the crowd that day, I totally got caught up in the moment. It would seem to me that everyone in Jerusalem is getting caught up in the moment as to what is happening. I'm guessing, judging from my ability to get swept up in the moment when the crowd is doing something, I'm guessing if I was in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, I would have been doing the exact same thing as the crowd and began chanting, Hosanna, save me. But like the crowds 2,000 years ago, I would have been wanting to be saved from all of my pains and all of my problems that I had going on in my life. For those in Jerusalem, the pains and the problems were linked to Rome. That was the crux of their pain, the crux of their problem. Whereas for us, 
Maybe the pains and the problems has nothing to do with country, but has something to do with maybe a person. The pains and the problems are tied to a relationship or maybe a disease or maybe a past or a present or a future that just seems very unclear that you ultimately just want to be saved from. But it's here that we are confronted with a paradigm shift. Jesus did not arrive in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago to bring peace to our lives so that we would be pain and problem free. Jesus arrived in Jerusalem in order to go to a cross to bring peace between God and sinful humanity. Similar to how I stopped with dirt in hand, beginning to ask myself the question, what on earth am I doing right now? I think the crowds began to have a very similar moment of, what are we doing right now? And in Matthew chapter 21, verse 10, the crowd begins to ask a very important question that we must answer. And this was the question. The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this, they asked. They're chanting and they're screaming, save us. But then the crowd realizes, what are we doing right now? And it says, the crowd, they begin to ask, who is this? And so my question for you as I finish, who is Jesus? How would you answer that question for yourself today? Because if Jesus is just a good moral man, if he was an amazing philosophical teacher, you're going to need to make a shift. If Jesus was just a really good counselor and kind of that therapist who came to give you peace and joy and happiness in your life, you're going to need to shift. If Jesus is just maybe part of an equation that you have, and the equation is, hey, my works and my religion and my spirituality and my morality plus Jesus is going to equal a beautiful relationship with God, you're going to need to make a serious shift. If the thought process up to this point has been, you know, I'm just going to get to God on my own way in my own time, there will need to be, again, another serious shift because Jesus made very clear that there is only one way to know God, to be friends of God, to have peace with God, and that is through the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. But today, if Jesus, if he is who he is to you is the son of God who came to Jerusalem to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin, for my sin, so that we might have peace with God, well, then the good news is you have no shift necessary that needs to be made. And the crowds that day were chanting, save us, but what you and I have the opportunity to not chant but to sing is, thank you for the salvation that you have brought to us in Christ. So who is Jesus? Does there need to be a shift today in how you would answer that question? If he is the son of God who you are looking to to be made right with God, then today as we sing songs of worship together, we don't cry out, save us. We cry out, thank you for saving us. So Father God.